All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. And you can open your Bible or you can look on our uh, screen or in the bulletin. We're looking at Matthew chapter 27, uh, verses 45 to 51. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 51. And I'll go ahead and read this for us. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together and dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and gathering us here to worship and to hear your word, and I thank you for gathering us whether we are coming to you as uh, seekers or believers, as um, those who trust in you or those who are doubtful of you or those who are just simply unsure. Uh, We know your word is sufficient to speak to all of us, uh, wherever we might be. Uh, Give us ears to hear. Open up our hearts uh, to receive this so that our souls would be nourished and fed and that we would be restored uh, into the image of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Pastor Kevin mentioned, we're entering into Passion Week, and uh, that's the week in which Christ entered Jerusalem, Uh, where he instituted the Lord's Supper, he was arrested, he was crucified, and then come next Sunday, we will celebrate uh, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. What I want to do today is share from this passage on the crucifixion of Christ as we're preparing you for Good Friday, which is coming up. And every few years, we we cover this passage, and so some of you may have heard this already, so it's a good refresher, it's a good reminder. And a good question to start us off with would be this. Um, why is it good? Why, why is Good Friday called Good Friday? Uh, there's, there's some historical indication that it started off as God's Friday and then it later became Good Friday. But still, why, why is this Friday on which the Son of God was crucified uh, good? Why not call it God's Bad Friday? I mean, we all have bad days and if if Jesus could pick out one bad day of his life, it was this day, right? Why, does, why is this not God's worst Friday? What's so good about Good Friday? And, and I think this passage tells us why. This Friday is good when we consider these three things from this passage. And I'll simply put it like this. It's the darkness and the cry and the friendship, these three. Okay? And, and each one is better than the previous thing. Okay? The darkness, the cry, and the friendship. So first, let's look at the darkness. Take a look at verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Okay, so the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that's noon till 3 p.m. Okay, the brightest time of the day, the hottest time of the day in this ancient Palestinian region. Yet there's this strange darkness, unnatural darkness, um, covering all the land. 
darkness that covers all the land. And commentators, theologians have pointed out there's a really clear parallel here that may not be immediate to us, but would have been immediate to the, the Jews and the Pharisees who were there. And that's the parallel to the plague of darkness in Exodus, Exodus chapter 10, when God says this to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Okay, so when Moses stretches out his hand toward heaven, it says there was a pitch darkness in all the land, all the land of Egypt, three days, three days. So the parallel here is in, in Exodus 10, pitch darkness over all the land for three days. Here in Matthew 27, pitch darkness over all the land for three hours. And what's similar really in these two instances is not just the, the duration of the, the judgment, um, but it's really the implication of the judgment. The darkness over the land of Egypt implied the judgment was being brought upon the, the people of Egypt, all the people of Egypt, right? Uh, who, all the people who inhabited that land and similarly, the darkness over the land of Israel then, right, would imply not the, not the sin of that person hanging on the cross, but the sins of all the people inhabiting the land, the land of Israel, okay, and in fact, all the world. The Jews and the Pharisees should have known this parallel right then and there, um, that this darkness implies that the death of Christ is not a judgment on Christ, it's a judgment on Israel, on all the world, the nations. Because Jesus wasn't dying for his sins, he was dying for the sins of his people. And, and Paul, the Apostle Paul later tells us, uh, this is not just talking about ethnic Israel, he's dying for spiritual Israel, that's the church, eternal Israel, those who will enter into heavenly Jerusalem, the, the eternal promised land. So what the cross should point us to is the total darkness of sin Deserving a judgment, not in Christ, but in all the people, in you and me. It's a reflection not of Christ's sinfulness, but ours. It's almost like a mirror uh, to our own sins when we look at the cross and look at that darkness. Um, interestingly, though, in Romans it says, the heart itself that's corrupted by sin is itself darkened, and so even if we were to try to look ourselves in the mirror, we don't always readily see our sinfulness, our own sinfulness. It's, it, we have a, a blind spot towards our own sin. And we don't think as objectively or as truthfully as we ought to about our, our own sinfulness. But yet, that's what we ought to see. When we look at the cross, and when we even look at the setting of the cross, the darkness covering all the land, a mirror image of our sinful nature, deserving of judgment. Now, I remember when the TV show uh, Black Mirror was like a, a big deal when it first came out. I don't recommend the show, by the way. <laughs> but um, I thought the title was really intriguing. So I remember asking, I think I asked one of you, um, who I think one of you were really into it. So I asked you, why is it called Black Mirror? Why is the show called Black Mirror? And it was told to me, it's really pointing to the black TV screen or the computer screen and when you look into it carefully, you see a reflection of yourself in the screen, in the dark screen itself. And, and so it's, it's a black mirror. It's a black reflection of yourself. And I thought, okay, I don't know much about the show, but that title is brilliant. Right? It's, that's a really cool title. What a critique of our, of our society, as it were. Right? Uh, it's it's kind of saying we are confined in that box. 
ourselves. And when you when you look into it, you're not looking you're not looking at it. You're in it. You're you're in a way confined to that reality. You're trapped in that reality. A lot of what happens in there is what's defining you and controlling you, and and in a way influencing your decisions in everyday life. Right. A, a recent documentary called Social Dilemma on Netflix kind of makes a similar point. It, that thing is not just something that you look at, but you are in it yourself, as it were, being influenced and shaped by it. It's almost like a prison. Now, where am I going with this? I think the cross, in a sense, is like this black mirror. It's just, just darker. It shows us how trapped we are, how doomed we are, how shaped we are by our own sins. And we don't even know it. Uh, the darkness isn't just there, so we will look at it. Right? The darkness in this passage is there, is, is there for us to see ourselves in it, trapped in it helpless in our own sinful state. And, and there's a, therefore, this confrontation here that's being conveyed through the darkness. It's confronting us about our sins, our rebellion against God, our abandoning God's good, defining our own good in life, living for self-glory rather than the glory of God, our maker. That's what's meant to be reflected in the darkness. Okay. Now, so far, I haven't said anything to you that's really... Good. How, how is this becoming Good Friday? Um, as discomforting as all this might sound, uh, there's good reason for us not to shy away from this, to run from this because it could possibly offend our feelings. Because you and I, all of us, are in need of a love that's strong enough to confront, confront you and me. If we know what's good for us, uh, we'd embrace a love that's strong enough to confront us. Because that's true love. True love confronts. A love that never confronts you okay, may still be love, but it's just a weaker kind. It's a more shallow kind. We tend to think it's, it's loving right, to not confront someone and tell them they're wrong or what's wrong with them, Right? But did you know that there's actually something very self-serving in that agenda of not confronting someone when you see something wrong? Uh, not wanting to confront because it's uncomfortable for me, right? It's caring more about my comfort than the well-being of my friend who needs to hear the truth. I would rather stay comfortable than to speak the truth this person needs to hear. There's something very self-serving about not confronting someone. And the irony is, you're not loving this person enough. It's not because you love them too much you don't confront. You don't love them enough to confront. God is not like that <laughs> at all. He's too good to prioritize his comfort over our well-being. He's always going to speak the truth in love, even if it means pointing us into this black mirror and saying, look at how trapped you are in your own sins. Even if it means telling us there's judgment coming. Unless we turn away from our sins, we'll face that judgment. That's one reason why we shouldn't shy away from this discomfort. But here's another reason. And this is more of a commonsensical reason. If God, if God is really there, and he exists, and he is actually God, and we are not God, it's only natural Right? Just think for a moment. It's only natural that he would confront us and not say to us, look, you're exactly like me. 
But instead, he would look at us and say, creatures, <laughs> learn from me, right, and change. If God is God, he's actually real, he actually exists, and we're not God, it's only natural that he would confront us and call us to be changed into his image. If anybody says they, that they believe in God who never confronts them about their sins, I think it's safe to say that God, whatever that God is, is just a figment of their own imagination. A God that never confronts you is just a fig. A God who is totally compatible with you in every single way is a figment of your own imagination. So there is a certain comfort even in knowing in all the ways that this God is incompatible with us because if he were totally compatible with us, we made him up probably. But this offends us in a lot of ways, doesn't it? To call us sinners, to say we're bound to judgment, it is not compatible with us, our culture, then maybe it's safe to say this is not just a, an imagination, a product of our culture. He's real. Okay, there's the darkness and perhaps some goodness in that darkness too. Here's the second thing, the cry. Okay, there's more than this confrontation conveyed through the darkness because after the darkness comes this cry in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, notice here what Jesus is crying and really screaming as he hangs on the cross and why. Um, others have made this observation. Jesus doesn't say, my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my life, my life, my family, my family, my career, my career. He's not crying about a physical or earthly loss at all, right? Nor is he crying about some ideal or value that he cherishes, something abstract like, you know, William Wallace, what's his, in Braveheart, his final cry before his death? Freedom, right? That's his ideal. Uh, Citizen Kane, right, what's, what's the final word uttered? At the end, Rosebud, right? That's kind of he wants what he wants to reminisce and go back to. Or in one of my favorite movies, Dead Poet Society, right? The student who steps on the desk, what does he say to, to Mr. Keating? Oh, captain, my captain, right? Famous last words. What was Jesus' ultimate value and ideal? His last words, right? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Okay, so notice the, the relational term. Yeah. Why have you forsaken me? Right, it's not some abstract idea about freedom. It's not some abstract idea about justice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's lamenting the loss of a relationship. Relationship. Being forsaken by what was most intimately his, his home with the Father. The love of the Father, that's what he was crying for. Uh, Tim Keller, in his commentary, he put it like this. If after a service some Sunday morning, one of the members of my church comes to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again, I will feel pretty bad. But if today my wife comes up to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again, that's a lot worse. The longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. You get that? The longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of that loss. 
So imagine the torment that Jesus is undergoing as he is, at least experientially, he is separated from the eternal fellowship he had with the Father. Jesus was losing that, that intimate relationship with his Father, and he was willing to, at least on an experiential level, willing to lose that infinite love of his Father. Why? For what? Out of his infinite love for you and for me. And I say on an experiential level because his nature, in his nature, he was still the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. He never lost that. But in his experience, he was carrying the agony of God's wrath upon sinners. You know something about our world that... Here's one of the things that our world likes to think. The world's common conception about love is, I would know this is love by how much I gain from it. Right? The feelings I get from it, right? the meaningfulness I sense from it, the benefits I might gain from it. That's how I prove that this love is true and right for me. It's how much I gain from it. And here's Jesus showing us God's love, agape, an utterly otherworldly love, which says, I'll prove my love for you not by how much I gain from you, but how much I lose for you, by how much I can sacrifice for you. That's the cross. That's the meaning of this cry crying this out of this forsakenness that he, he's feeling right now so that we wouldn't have to feel it. To prove his infinite love for us by losing that infinite love of the Father. Again, at least in his experience. He's proving to us by just how much he's willing to lose for us the extent of his love for us. That's the cross. Him being forsaken, so we would not be. Him crying out from the place of forsakenness, so we wouldn't be forsaken. The judgment that should have fallen upon us, falling on him instead. That's the meaning of this cry. Okay, now, if, if that's happened, and if we're forgiven, if we believe that, if we're reconciled, what does that make us? Okay, and here's where we, we this is where church lingo comes in, right? We, we know that we are children of God. We are disciples of Christ. We're citizens of his kingdom and all these things. And we've looked at a lot of these things in the past few months, I would say. Here's one thing I just want to highlight for you today. Just as you meditate on this passage throughout this week, please hone in on this, this theme and this identity that we gain through the crucifixion, and that is friendship. I just want to highlight friendship for this week. And that will be the last point. If you see the darkness reflecting your sinfulness and, and you, you can identify with the cry as being your cry, that Jesus was crying for you, if you can own the darkness, if you can own the cry, then you can also own the friendship. So take a look at verse 50 where he says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Okay, the key word there is the word yielded. That's an active verb. Jesus' life, his spirit, wasn't taken from him. He yielded it. Remember what Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I lay it down for my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This means Jesus was laying down his life actively and willingly and even joyfully on the cross. Right? Jesus was fully in control. This cry he cried wasn't because he was losing control. It was him fully in control, yielding his spirit. Right? Jesus didn't go into the grave resisting and fighting, like you know, Dylan Thomas says, right? rage against the dying of the light. He didn't rage against the dying of the light. He, he embraced the dying of the light. He snuffed it out. Why? So that we will be enlightened. We will be awakened. We will be made alive. We will be born again. He also says in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was laying down his life willingly and powerfully, not to show off how powerful he is, but to embrace his friends. This is the very work that he came to do as our high priest. Jesus not laying down his life simply to forgive us, simply to be our high priest, but to be our high priest, to forgive us our sins, to befriend us forever. He became our priest to be our brother and friend. That's the end goal. So it's, it's, it's vastly insufficient for us to consider Christianity and think, this is how I get my sins forgiven. I would say that's not even half the picture. Once you are forgiven, you receive the righteousness that Christ gives you. All of his obedience, perfect obedience, becomes yours. Why? So you can be buddies forever in his kingdom. Friends of God forever. This is also the meaning behind the, the curtain torn in two in the temple. Uh, it says in verse 51 that the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And this meant that Jesus' sacrifice now nullifies or fulfills the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And, and Christ has forever removed that thick barrier that existed between God and his people. Jesus has made that barrier and the whole sacrificial system obsolete. How? By offering himself up as the once and for all sacrifice. For who? For his friends. And just as his body was torn apart, that curtain was torn in two to say, come in, come into my fellowship forever. And this is why this Friday is called Good Friday. It's good for us, right? Because our sins are forgiven and we become the friends of God. And it's good for Jesus because he's regaining his friends that he's lost. He did this willingly, powerfully, joyfully for his friends. I think this completely radically changes the way we think about friendship. Not as, what can you give me? What can I gain from you? No, to befriend someone means, what can I lose for you? What can I lay down for you? At least that's as what Christians should consider when they think about friendship. All right. What's left for us to do then? If we believe this, and if we want this, okay, what is to take place next? I want to leave you with two things. Okay? 
two things ought to happen when you believe this. One is more instantaneous, and the other is more gradual. Okay? Here's the instantaneous thing that should happen. The, what should happen the moment you believe this is you find rest. You say, it is well. It is well. In a sense, to truly befriend Jesus is to rest in him. That's how you know you believe in him is you can rest in him. Rather than seeking your rest in your accomplishments, in what people think about you, in your self-salvation project through you know, your career path, through building a family or, or wealth, you rest in him and you say, I have nothing else to prove because my worth is fully proven in his love for me. If you can rest in him that way and turn away from all the other things you've been resting in, that's when you know you truly believe. That's when you know you truly have Christ as your Savior, is if you can rest in him. If you can rest in him. That should happen instantaneously. Every other religion, every other philosophy out there, right, whether it's religious or secular, will be basically telling you, obey this or follow these steps, and you'll be saved. Obey this, and you'll be saved. Christ is the only one who is saying, I've saved you, now obey. I've already saved you, now obey. Right? That's rest. That's restful obedience. I obey not to be accepted, but because I am accepted. Not to prove my worth, but because my worth has been already proven. Okay? That's resting in Jesus. That has to happen when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've been wrestling with that kind of rest, right? wrestling to rest, this is something to pray for first and foremost. Lord, help me to find this rest. Help me to turn away from all these other things I've been trying to seek my rest in, which have really left me restless. Help me to turn to you once and for all and rest in you. That's the first thing you have to do. Here's the second thing that happens, and this is a gradual thing. And that is you begin to grow into his image. You begin to grow. If you befriend Jesus, you will become like him more and more day by day. And that's gradual. Okay? You don't become like Jesus overnight. right? He's not asking you to become a spiritual perfectionist. And tomorrow morning, you wake up and you feel like a spiritual avenger okay, out there to just you know, defeat all your demons. It's a gradual, gradual process day by day, little by little. And it begins with you just befriending Jesus one day at a time. Here's something C.S. Lewis said about friendship that always stuck with me. He said, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. It is when two such persons discover one another, when whether with immense difficulties and semi-articulate fumblings, they share their vision. It is then that friendship is born, and they stand together in an immense solitude. To be a friend to someone, in a sense, is saying to them, no, friend, you're not alone. You're not the only one. Okay. So what would that mean for us to say that to Jesus and befriend Jesus? It's to say to Jesus, no, Jesus, you are not the only one. You're not the only one who sees the world the way you see it. I'm also beginning to see the world the, 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 way, the way you see it. I'm standing with you now shoulder to shoulder. I'm conforming to your worldview. You're not the only one. Or as Emerson put it, to ask, do you love me, means do you see the same truth? 
Or at least do you care about the same truth? So to befriend Jesus also means this. That we say to Jesus more and more day by day, Jesus, I care about the same truth that you do. To befriend someone is not to say, you live your truth, I live mine. No, to befriend someone means, I see your truth and I care about your truth. And it's why we want to study the Bible. It's why we want to grow as a disciple, to be able to say with increasing confidence, not I'm living my truth, I'm living Jesus' truth. I'm seeing the world as he sees it, and I care about the same truth as he does. That's befriending him. On the cross, what you're looking at in this passage is Jesus feeling like he might be, he might be the only one. Why have you forsaken me? And in a sense, perhaps he's also saying that to his disciples as well. Why have my friends forsaken me? He was feeling utterly alone on the cross. But on this side of the cross, where we are today, he has many friends. He has you and he has me. And we say to him, when when we think back on the cross, we say to him, no, Lord, you're not alone. You're not the only one. We stand with you. We stand by the cross. We cling to the cross. We champion the cross, the message of the cross, and the verdict on the world and the hope for the world that it offers. We stand with you. That's befriending him. So I hope throughout this Passion Week, you try to meditate on this. Just this one thing. And maybe make it, make it a goal. At some point during the day throughout this week, every day, some point during the day, um, consider this. How are you seeing the world the way he sees it? Just identify it for yourself. Just articulate for yourself. How am I seeing the world the way Jesus sees the world? Or how are you caring for the things that he cares about? And be specific. How are you specifically caring about the things that he cares about? Why? Because you want to befriend him as he has befriended you. How am I being his true friend? Ask yourself that throughout this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Good Friday. And we thank you for the amazing love that you've shown us through your son's amazing gift of friendship. Friendship true enough to confront us about our darkness, yet gracious enough to cry for us in our suffering. Lord, may we receive this gift uh, in humility and offer you the small token of our friendship as well as we live in your truth, obedient to your commands, to show, yes, Lord, we don't want to befriend the world. We want to befriend your son. If we have lived as friends of the world, conforming to the image of the world, not ever confronting the world, but finding ourselves confronted by you, help us to just reverse course, go the other way around. and May we lovingly confront the world and find ourselves standing with Christ who stood for us, acknowledging Christ who acknowledged us so that we would be proven to be his true and genuine friends. And may we find our rest in him throughout this week as we meditate on Passion Week, uh, the week of Christ's suffering, knowing, Lord, that he has paid all the price uh, that's needed to be paid for us to find rest in him and not for us to labor continually for that rest, anxiously fight for and strive for that rest in the world 
where there's none to offer us. Uh, there's, there's no rest for us to enjoy. Deepen our understanding of this gospel and deepen our friendship with your son. And we pray in his name. Amen.